This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 451. And you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with a little trick. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show, only here on Drummer's Resource. And um, it's been an exciting couple of weeks. I just uh, got done with a bunch of touring stuff. Uh, literally working 23 out of 30 days in November, and I think 22 out of 31 days in December. So uh, I'm a happy musician. I'm also in the midst of keying up several new projects and working on ongoing things. So uh, life is busy, and um, I'll keep you up to date in my newsletter and all the rest of that jazz as it uh, as things progress in, into the end of this year and, and, of course, into what will hopefully be a good 2019 for us all. Um, but today, I want to focus on, um, uh, you know, a general subject that is always near and dear to my heart, which is the history of drums. And uh, although, you know, some of you might be going, oh, God, history, it was, you know, the word history is loaded, freighted with baggage. Um, you know, for me, history is, has just been an incredible discovery a journey into um, our story, you know, all of us who are drummers, all of us who are musicians, all of us who love music, looking at where we come from. And, you know, what you really discover, the more you dig into history, is uh, that those of us who who, who love music, who, who play music, it's the same experience uh, that others had in other generations. It's just that they wore slightly different clothes and the instruments maybe looked a little different, sounded a little different, recording quality was a little different. It's the same experience, it's the same joy, it's the same passion, it's the same uh, cool hang, you know, uh, and um, it's just music, man, that's all it is. So uh, what I want to sp- specifically focus on today is the uh, the tom-tom and the evolution of the tom-tom. Now, uh, a lot of people, you know, when they think about the drum set, they just sort of go, yeah, the drum set's always been here, always been with us. But if you've seen uh, my Century Project DVD or any of the many, um, many um, books, d- videos, DVDs, etc. I've released over the years about uh, this wonderful instrument, the drum set, you realize that it, didn't, it did not just fall from the clear blue sky fully evolved. It it uh, f- rather fully completed in the form that it is today. It evolved, and um, the tom tom really plays an interesting story, not only in the its part in the evolution of the drum set, but also uh, its its role in the evolution of um, popular music, as as we know it. So, if we go back to the beginnings of the drum set, which I date to somewhere around the American Civil War when uh, there was not even a pedal yet, but they were beginning to, uh, drummers were beginning to put together uh, the marching military instruments, the instruments of a military um, uh, unit. Um, they, 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 you know, were beginning to, to play bass drums and snare drums together and cymbals and figuring out how one person could do the job of, of previously three. 
Uh, but there was yet, as of yet, no no Tom Tom. And what originally brought the Tom Tom into the drum set, uh, believe it or not, is the um, the 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 large immigration of Chinese uh, who started coming to this country around 1850 and came in very very large numbers. What drew them here was um, first the gold rush 1849 um, and then. Uh, the, uh, you know, opportunities, a lot of work opportunities. The railroads, of course, were exploding, transcontinental railroad. Uh, so they came, uh, like all other immigrants, come to America looking for a better opportunity. Uh, so between 1850 and 1880, very large numbers of Chinese came. They brought with them, of course, their um, cultural artifacts. Uh, and um, And among those were the first sort of what we call tom-toms. Now, let's step back and just take a look at this word tom-tom and even sort of talk about its origins because the word tom-tom is um, it's actually not of Chinese origin. It's, it's uh, I did some research on this. It's of Hindustani origin. And for several centuries, uh, the word has been used throughout Eng- the English-speaking world to refer to the drums of any uncivilized people. So, you know, here in the United States, when we think about the word tom-tom, we think, um, we think about it uh, going back, you know, to Native Americans and the drums that they use. But I don't necessarily believe that the word tom-tom was the word that the Native Americans referred to their own drums. It was sort of more the word that the white man referred to, sort of the g- generic word to refer to any kind of ethnic drums that didn't line up with, with their way of thinking about things. Now, very interestingly, in addition to, you know, there were already, before the Chinese came, there were two sort of major kinds of tom-toms available uh, here in, in the United States, uh, those, of course, of, of the Native Americans and those of the Africans who were brought over as slaves. But both of those variants on the tom-tom were essentially banned uh, because of prejudice and uh, uh, racism. Uh, and, you know, there, there was a lot of fear among slave owners uh, in the South that if Africans and the African slaves and their descendants were allowed to use their ethnic drums, that they would um, send signals to each other uh, and that would result in, in, in rebellion. And so that's part of the reason why they stripped them of, of these instruments. Uh, and to some degree, they were probably right. Uh, because they could not understand, you know, the language of, of the music uh, that was being used in, in, and was used for communication. Uh, thankfully, those drums were not taken away in the French protectorate. You remember most of the South uh, in the slave, uh, slave days was uh, under British control, but you had the, the French uh, protectorate, which included Louisiana and New Orleans, and uh, those those slaves were allowed to keep their drums and use them on Sundays. And because of that, <laughs> uh, we have all we, we we should all be grateful because out of that emerged, of course, jazz and and um, you know the ability to practice uh, African drumming, singing, dancing is is what has led us to uh, the great American music that we have today. Uh, 
you know, but that's a whole nother story. That's a whole nother podcast. But in any case, so you have ethnic drums, but they're banned. However, the Chinese come between 1850 and 1880, and they bring their drums. Uh, in some of the research that I've done, uh, apparently, you know, they had these world fairs and world expos. Uh, there was a big one in Chicago, I think, in, I want to say, 1893. Um, and I think there was another one in, in 1905, the St. Louis, the famous Meet Me in St. Louis, the St. Louis World's Fair. Uh, and these uh, had international pavilions. So you have to remember at this time, around the turn of the last century, most people never traveled more than 20 miles from their home, let alone went anywhere in the world. And uh, so these these World's Fairs offered a, 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 a very unusual peek into cultures of the world, and they would of the French pavilion and the, you know, Fijian pavilion. And they would have many, many cultures from around the world would have their own little, you know, zone and they would present what their life was like. And it was very exotic and uh, enthralling for people of that time period. So, um, of course, the Chinese pavilion being that many Chinese immigrants had come during that period, uh, the Chinese pavilion was was a, a, a prime feature. These people were very exotic. Their music was exotic. Their language, their dress, their, uh, you know, cuisine, um, you name it. And um, so drummers of the period who were beginning to put together these drum sets were, you know, seeing this music. And maybe they would see a Chinese New Year parade uh, and hear the drums. Uh, so we have to remember that the function of early drum set players up until about 1930, when silent films, you know, the, the movies with sound became standard. That was a huge moment in history. There was a, a sea change in so many ways, and drummers in particular were affected. Prior to that time period, they had been really, a, 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 they weren't even called drum set players, they were called trap drummers, and uh, the drum set had a sort of a threefold function. Uh, certainly it was for timekeeping, uh, which is primarily what what we use the drum set for today, for you know, for dancing, for stage shows, other things. But uh, drummers also ke- ke- had an element of classical percussion. Many drum sets of the period and many much drum music and notation of that time include um, you know a bit for a glockenspiel or a tambourine or um, other kinds of classical European percussion. And thirdly, the drum set was used. And, and this is where the, the term traps comes in. But drums, drum set players were also sound effects people because there were so many situations where they had to provide uh, sound for what was happening on stage, whether it was a, a, a burlesque house, a bump and grind dancer, or a stage show uh, where there were pratfalls and, and um, other kinds of uh, comedic um, elements to the show. Uh, and then, of course, radio, um, which you couldn't see. And... The, you know, the first movies, which were popular for basically three decades uh, before they included sound. And so, you know, they were called, um, they weren't called silent movies because there was no, there was nothing to compare it to. They were called moving pictures, and uh, which would then was shortened to movies, of course. Um, and so, you know, the, the, there was a lot of sound effects work for drummers in this particular industry. So every drum set of the period often included your classic elements, bass drum, snare drum, uh, cymbal mounted usually on the bass drum itself 
It could be struck with the bass drum pedal. Of course, pedals started coming in already by the 1870s, um, and the standalone design that we all know and love today really uh, was was cemented with Ludwig patenting its version in 1909, although stand freestanding pedals had been around already in many forms prior to that. But that sort of locked in the design that we still use today. So, drummers were seeing and always looking for interesting effects. And they grabbed from the Chinese not only the tom-tom, uh, which, by the way, the, the, the original tom-toms are, are small. Uh, they're, you know, they're ethnic instruments often used in celebrations or religious ceremonies or in parades. Um, so they uh, were brightly colored, often red and black, painted with dragons and other um, ceremonial kind of uh, animals on them. Uh, so they were appealing. And... Um, they had an unusual sound. The heads were tacked on. So if you, if I'll post a picture of a Chinese Tom on, on the show notes to this podcast, but the heads were tacked on. They were often, you know, maybe, uh, just, uh, say 10, 11 inches in diameter, 12 inches in diameter, uh, maybe only four inches deep. And, um, and they, they were quite unusual looking. Uh, of course you could not tune them. They were not uh, that sophisticated, but they made an interesting sound. They had an interesting look. And especially um, as jazz takes over uh, or becomes more popular, first ragtime and then jazz, and the drum set is the really the first, the, jazz is really the first kind of music that um, actually used the drum set as an integral part of what it was about. Uh, they had drummers in ragtime, but they were still mostly sort of playing in a military style. And it's not until, you know, jazz evolves first in New Orleans and then comes uh, out uh, in, in the 1920s that, you know, the drum set is an integral part of, of what's happening in jazz, which, of course, is improvisationally based. So drummers, you know, starting uh, by the turn of the century, but really in the first couple of decades of the 20th century, uh, begin to add the Chinese tom as an, a, a, a regular component of the drum set. First, simply for the sound effects purposes. And you have to remember that these, these it was very difficult to mount these toms. If you check out the Century Project DVD, you could see how we mount it. Uh, you can't just wail on them as easily as, as you can... Uh, uh, you know, today's modern uh, tom-toms, rack toms and floor toms, th- th- these were very uh, pre- pre- precariously mounted, these Chinese toms. But they provided a cool little sound. And, of course, the jazz drummers with who were syncopating everything and improvising, which was a, a first for all the instruments uh, that were involved in a jazz band, um, they were figuring out new ways to use these things. So on a lot of uh, 1920s recordings, of course, that's when jazz exploded. That was the jazz age. You begin to hear how they integrated uh, the the tom-tom into what they called fill-ins at the time. So um, I should also mention that by the 1920s, they, um, they well, the, the way they originally brought the toms to... America, and and so let me even back up further. The Chinese came, as I said, in large numbers between 1850 and 1880. But by 1880, there was a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment. A lot of other immigrants were coming. This was a huge period of mass immigration to the United States from, you know, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, Ireland, 
uh, and, you know, of course, Asia, all over the world, <clears throat> people were flocking to the United States. There was a lot of upheaval. The Industrial Revolution was, was underway. Revolutions were happening. Um, and sort of for the first time, mass populations were moving. Uh, and, of course, a lot of folks wanted to come to the United States for all the obvious reasons. Um, but it was not easy. Just like a lot of the battles today, uh, there, were, there were many forces saying that, that these people coming were going to take jobs. They were going to destroy the character and the quality of the nation. Um, and so the Chinese, having actually been on the, the front edge of this mass wave of immigration, and because their culture was so different and they looked so different, uh, were subject to mass um, discrimination and discriminatory laws set up specifically against them. There was something called the Chinese Exclusion Act. And so even though, you know, they had come in large numbers and had, uh, you know, worked hard to build the nation's railroads and, and a lot of other uh, brutal kind of manual labor sorts of, of gigs, um, they the Chinese immigration came almost to a standstill by the 1880s, and Chinese were actually prevented from coming into the United States by law in some form or another, all the way through uh, into, you know, even the 40s and the 50s. I mean, it's, it's kind of an incredible story when you dig deep uh, in, into it. So it's, it's, you know, what's ironic about this is that then, you know, their instruments uh, are co-opted and not co-opted, but I guess we could say repurposed into American culture, American society. In, in the form of the drum set. Now, tom-toms were not the only instruments appropriated from Chinese culture. Chinese symbols. Uh, today we call them China symbols. We think of them as up, upside-down symbols where the, where the edge is flanged out, up, instead of, you know, down. They sound like a trash can a little bit. Uh, those were also um, borrowed, quote-unquote, from Chinese culture. Early drum sets included temple blocks. Uh, they're brightly colored also, often shaped like dragon's heads or other things. Uh, pitched wooden blocks um, were used throughout the 1920s. And then, um, you know, Picked up again later along the way by, say, Sonny Greer, Duke Ellington's drummer in the 30s. A lot of 30s drummers still had these elaborate drum sets. And then people like Neil Peart. And Neil, I always famously mention the Rush song, The Trees, where Neil Peart is using temple blocks. So, you know, in a way that owed to these traditional large, um, what were called trap, trap drum sets, trap sets, uh, that, that tradition has continued to a degree. But, uh, and also wood blocks, which was a standard part um, of, of every jazz drum set, the 20s, 30s, uh, and even into the 40s, 50s today, wood blo- you know, uh, cowbells uh, as well. But, but the wood block is uh, from Chinese and Korean culture. So you have all this kind of uh, appropriation of, um, uh, you know, ch- Chinese instruments, in- including the tom-tom. So what happened is, as these became a standard part of the drum set, you had the American manufacturers, since the Chinese weren't allowed to come in, you had American manufacturers, just like today, setting up relationships with, with or the American distributors, setting up relationships with Chinese manufacturers in China. And the people from Ludwig and Slingerland, uh, they would go to China, and they had deals with certain villages where these tom-toms were made or where the symbols were made. And uh, you can often find 1920s uh, toms, Chinese toms, when you can find a little Ludwig sticker, uh, decal that's been applied to it. Um, and so often these were imported. Now, obviously, this arrangement, uh, while you know it lasted for a while, eventually by the 
really by the 1930s, the early 30s, the manufacturers were saying, well, why don't we just make our own tom-toms? And so the original sort of American-made version of the Chinese tom is tacked on the bottom, but they got the bright idea that, well, let's design it like a snare drum, and let's, uh, so you could remove the top head, and you could you could tune and change the top head. Of course, the downside of these Chinese tom-toms is that uh, if you broke the head, uh, it would, um, you know, you'd either have to throw the drum away. It was very awkward to have to replace these. There's often, I'd say, 50 tacks going around, little small, you know, uh, they look like big thumbtacks or something, um, holding the head in place. So, uh, you know, tuning and other things, and of course, these these are made of animal skin. The heads, um, they you know, are often treated with some kind of uh, substance material that that makes them very hard. Uh, so, but but calf heads in general, or animal skin heads, are very affected by weather and um, atmospheric conditions, humidity, etc. So the uh, you know, it just wasn't a, a tenable situation as as things moved into the 30s, the 1930s. So, as I said, you start seeing in the catalogs in the very early 30s, um, tom-toms with a single tunable head, but a tacked bottom head. And, of course, by this point, drum companies, you know, whereas before they might produce bass drums and snare drums, now are producing outfits, they were called, which is a complete kit because the drum set is becoming more formalized. It's being used in more and more different kinds of music and um, has really developed as an instrument, not just, you know, these marching drums kind of thrown together and you had to find this one here and that one there and that one there. So in the catalogs, often now uh, the drums are painted in whatever shade the rest of the drum set is, um, white or, or what have you. So flash forward now, we're in the 1930s, and of course the 1930s, uh, whereas the 20s is, is the jazz age, uh, marked by, um, you know, 1920s jazz exploding in in uh, in, in uh hand in hand with prohibition, you know, mobster speakeasies. I mean, that was the environment where jazz, which was really a, an underground music, uh, it was black music. It was not something that upstanding people listened to or danced to. But of course, all the young people were, were into it. So jazz gets on board, becomes more mainstream. And by the 1930s, jazz has become sophisticated enough that now the vehicle that is uh, bringing jazz to the world is the big band. And of course, we could say that the, you know, the, the, the true big band age kicks off in 1935 with Benny Goodman at the Palomar Ballroom in Los Angeles. That's a whole story which we don't want to get into or need to get into now. But, of course, on the drums is the great Gene Krupa. Now, Krupa and the Tom Tom, there's sort of a really nice connection, which I've talked about. I had Brooks Tegler on the program a while ago as a guest. He's a Gene Krupa expert, and he talked all about um, how Krupa was really... Because for the first time, um, Gene Krupa, due to his magnetic personality, his great playing, and his his ability um, to sort of, uh, you know, and, and he was playing in a big band, so he could really play out. Remember, jazz drummers had not been able to do so, which was another reason why tom-tom evolution had been restricted to these very small um, kind of Chinese toms. And I one thing else I did want to point out, sorry, I keep diverting in different directions, but... Um, 
they also were importing not only small Chinese tom-toms, but by the 1920s, they were part, importing large Chinese tom-toms, which they would set in a basket type of a, of a rig or a tripod on the floor. So the concept of a floor tom was already in existence with the use of Chinese toms. It wasn't a standard part of a kit the way that it is today, but uh, it was... Um, it, it, you know, that concept of putting something big on the ground, sitting on some kind of a, a, a basket that a drummer could reach, was was definitely um, was 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 happening. So, Gene Krupa, uh, through this culmination of events, he he's, he's in a big band. Technology, recording technology is getting better. Drummers are finally having the opportunity to really step out and play rather than having to always be so quiet. Remember, recordings in the 1920s, often what you're hearing is not what a drummer actually played in the real world. They were only allowed to bring in maybe a, um, a, a snare drum or a choke cymbal uh, or, you know, very, very limited items because there was fear that they, um, that, that they could overload the recording gear, uh, knock the, the needle off that was carving the um, signal or the electronic uh, information into the, to the wax cylinder, et cetera, et cetera. So by 1935, Gene Krupa, Benny Goodman, swing in general explodes. Um, it's going to rule the roost for at least the next 10 years uh, until the end of World War II. And what Krupa does is he, his company is the Slingerland Company. He very quickly, like Ringo, 35 years or 30 years later, uh, makes Slingerland the number one drum company on the planet. He has tons of power uh, within this company. And they start working on um, the idea of uh, formalizing a tom-tom that could be tuned from top and bottom just like a snare drum. And, you know, maybe, I don't know why, maybe this had been an expensive, too expensive of an option to be able to have all the drums be tunable. Uh, I don't know exactly the reason why this was the moment. And, but he does. And so for the first time, dual tension, tunable tom-toms appear. And lo and behold, Gene Krupa's signature song is... Sing, 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 a song that uses the tom-tom as its primary vehicle and really introduces the tom-tom to the world now, not as just some small uh, thing that you tap on for a sound effect or for fill-ins, but something that's an integral part of the drum set and that you can really keep time on. It has this primal kind of dark thing. Of course, Duke Ellington had been using tom-toms and you know other things to explore kind of African-sounding um, swing music since the 1920s, but as we know, this world was a racist and segregated one, and so uh, it oftentimes the white bands were the ones that had the opportunities that had you know the opportunities to record, to perform, or to bring some kind of innovation that black bands had already been kind of using or working on and really mainstream it. Um, so for better and for worse, I guess that's another argument we could have in another. Um, another episode of the podcast about appropriation and was that a good thing or a bad thing? Was it stealing or, you know, was it bringing something to the masses that helped the general, uh, that helped raise all boats, I guess. Um, so uh, a lot of opinions on that. But um, so now all of a sudden in my research, it's kind of amazing. I list in the Century Project, I have a list that scrolls 
where I mention all the different bands that as soon as Sing 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 became the phenomenal hit that it was, uh, every band had to have a song that featured the Tom Tom. So uh, Tommy Dorsey's band with the young Buddy Rich had Hawaiian War Chant. Um, there was the song Golden Wedding. Um, and, you know, every, uh, uh, every big band now had the Tom Tom song. Uh, and I, I can maybe put that list up in the show notes as well. I'd have to go back and review it. But um, suddenly the, they were here and they were, they were leading the pack. So um, then in, in the 1930s and into the 1940s, that sort of thunderous Tom Tom sound became synonymous with swing and with this sort of um, sing, sing, sing style of playing. Now, let's move forward to 1945. Uh, World War II ends. Massive sea change once again. People associate swing music with the war, with the depression, with something of the past. Um, and they're, they're eagerly seeking something new. And so uh, big band jazz, which, you know, by the way, this is the only time in the history of the world when jazz music and Pop music were one and the same when jazz was the pop music that everyone listened to, that everyone danced to. It was very accessible. So that splits into two pieces. And what we get is the music that followed the art form of jazz, which of course is bebop, and the music that followed the danceable, swinging nature of jazz, which of course is rhythm and blues, which would lead us to rock and roll and all other backbeat styles that followed. Um, now, the tom-tom took a very interesting turn in both of these scenarios. Let's start with bebop. And you have to remember that um, jazz musicians in the 1930s, as much as jazz had been very mainstream, jazz musicians were feeling constrained, and jazz drummers were feeling constrained because the main focal point of the music and of the um, the, the the music was to make people dance, so you had to keep it simple. Um, the beboppers, in addition to making sort of a a statement about you know it, bebop, don't people don't realize music just didn't suddenly get complicated for no reason. This was an African American uh, revolution of sorts. Remember that the state of black people had been continually getting better in America, and there there had been. after World War II and during World War II, a mass migration out of the South, uh, out because with so many uh, white men in the segregated military having to go to war, um, many opportunities came up for uh, women and African-Americans to uh, actually finally get decent jobs for the first time maybe in, in, in history. Uh, factories that uh, were dedicated to manufacturing for the, the war effort. Uh, you had uh, the, the war in the Pacific meant that huge aerospace cropped up in California. So out of the South, a lot of African-Americans went to these spots and they began to, um, you know, step up and take their place in society. And the way this showed itself musically in New York is that bebop musicians said, look, we want to push the idea of jazz as an improvisational art form forward. And we've also been co-opted at every step of the road by, you know, the establishment by society. And so we're going to create our own kind of music that no one's going to be able to take away from us. And people like Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Thelonious Monk, um, and many others, you know, uh, gathered at Minton's Playhouse. Kenny Clark was a drummer, Max Roach, um, 
Charlie Christian. You know, and there's these really fascinating early uh, tapes of these jam sessions at Minton's. Minton's up in Harlem was right near Columbia University, and so you had some egghead engineering type students who at Columbia who actually had a mobile recording unit uh, using tape that they would schlep down to Minton's. This is, of course, in the early 1940s. Um, and thank God for them, because there's some fantastic recordings that are, the fidelity is quite good, that have survived. You can look those up. Um, in any case, the drummers of Bebop, and we mentioned Kenny Clark and Max Roach, but, you know, again, as we move from the 40s and into the 50s, realized that the drum set could be used as much more than just a timekeeper, um, and that if you made the drums, if you went with smaller size drums, then you could more accurately um, portray the melody of the song in your performance. Um, you weren't just going to bump, bump, bump on the bass drum anymore, although four on the floor as as a bread and butter element of a bebop drummer's uh, you know, footwork continues to this day, but it was, it's much, became a more subtle thing. And certainly the Tom Toms now, which had been large in size, you know, uh, and, uh, deep and, and, you know, the, of course the heads are animal skin, uh, they went with smaller sizes. And so, especially when you get into the fifties, um, and a lot of the classic bebop, Philly Joe Jones, Art Blakey, uh, Art Taylor, uh, you know, all those cats, Classic kind of blue note vibe, all those uh, you know, prestige, those 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 albums. Uh, they're using smaller drums in general and smaller tom sizes, and that is when the standard uh, bebop kit that is still used today, either an eighteen or twenty inch bass drum, twelve inch tom, fourteen inch floor tom, twelve rack, fourteen floor. That's when those sizes really became established, and so suddenly they're using tom toms in a much more melodic way, in a more subtle way. Although certainly the Gene Krupa style of timekeeping on the toms um, has always been with us uh, up, up to today. It's it's still a very popular mode in, for drummers in every style. Um, so on the flip side, the rhythm and blues side of things, uh, they maintained the more kind of uh, larger size drums. The idea behind a rhythm and blues band was to maintain that sense of entertainment, and it was to maintain the volume and size of the big band. And so this is why, even though big bands now by the late 40s were out of fashion, um, the, the rhythm and blues musicians were looking for ways to replace that loss of sound. So that's why the electric guitar, which, you know, Charlie Christian, 1936 around, we start to hear him electrifying his guitar, although other guys were doing it at the same time. Um, electric bass shows up, 1949, 1950, the first Fender basses uh, get on the scene. And rhythm and blues is the first style really to, to incorporate both of these instruments, it, it, making them a standard part of a, a rhythm and blues band. And of course, rock and roll would just cop all of that and that would be the next logical extension. So <clears throat> in this case, rhythm and blues itself is really a groove music and the toms were not as integral a part as they had been either in swing or in bebop. Um, rhythm and blues is about the groove and that's it. And it's a, a much, much simpler form of form of form of music, 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 um, you know, what, what today we groove music, but it's in rhythm and blues that they begin to explore and experiment with, 
um, flattening out the swung eighth feel, you know, and um, by the time you get to the mid 50s, of course, you've got your Chuck Berries and your little Richards. um, And, you know, and then uh, out of that, you know, your Bill Haley's rock and roll emerges. So let's flash forward again, because we're already 35 minutes in and and I'm only up to the 1950s uh, with this Tom Tom story. Now, what's interesting is that in the 1950s, the Tom Tom makes sort of um, a, a resurgence, a reappearance as as a as a star in the uh, sound of the music. And you have um, one of the first records that I can think of, uh, which was a it was a crossover hit. It was you might say it was a rhythm and blues hit, but it was embraced by young white audiences. Remember, rhythm and blues in the 40s began as an African American style made by African Americans for. African-American audiences who, for the first time, because they had uh, better sources of employment, could now afford to buy records in the style of music that they liked. But it was very adult music still. It was not music for kids. However, you also have, at the same time, the baby boom generation is born, uh, starting in at the very end of World War II. And by the mid-50s now, uh, this generation is looking to find their own kind of music. And of course, what do they like? They like stuff that has a great beat, something you could dance to, something that's going to piss off mom and dad, and rhythm and blues fit the bill in every possible way. Of course, racial barriers are starting to fall, or continuing to fall, we should say, although obviously in the 1950s there was still a long way to go. But, you know, that with... um, all these different regions of the country where different kinds of rhythm and blues were being made and music is still very regional kind of a, of a thing, this young white generation really discovers black music. And so the song Topsy Part 2, which is ironic because it was created by Cozy Cole, uh, who was a swing-era drummer. He was a peer of Gene Krupa. And as an older man on a lark, he made sort of this 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 tune called Topsy. And there was a part one and a part two, uh, which they used to do um, because, it, you know, you could either get two singles out of it or back in the days of 78s, which this still sort of was in the 50s because um, uh, singles and LPs didn't come along until the end of the 50s. So you would record, you'd split a song on two sides if it was too long um, or you'd make two versions of it. So Topsy Part 2 became a huge hit, kind of a house party hit. Kids would play records and dance to them. It became a jukebox hit. Those were all important um, measures of uh, understanding the success of black music because uh, the term rhythm and blues um, was a relatively new term uh, that didn't even get coined, I think, I can't remember. Jerry Wexler coined it. He had been working at Billboard, and they had no good way to to to, to explain the success of of black records. So I think it was 1949 that the term um, rhythm and blues was actually created as a Billboard chart. Um, but in any case, I digress as always. Uh, so. Topsy features Cozy Cole doing exactly what he did with Gene Krupa uh, in that era. And suddenly, though, a new generation is hearing it, and they're totally into it. And if you flash forward a little farther forward now, let's move forward. This idea of what Topsy, this, this basically the same kind of sound as Sing Sing Sing, becomes popular with the kids. Uh, and you have Sandy Nelson uh, come along, who was a, a teenager, and in the very late 50s and early 60s had a number of huge hits among them let there be drums and teen beat which of course kicked off the sound of 
thundering tom-toms to a whole new generation of white youth. Um, Topsy was sort of the first step, and then, you know, white artists, of course, doing these things, uh, and especially young white artists. Remember, Cozy Cole was an older man at this point. Uh, So, you know, suddenly um, the tom-tom is is getting a whole new lease on life. Um, and, And this... You know, period then, we call this the golden age of instrumental rock. The tom-tom played a huge role in the golden age of instrumental rock. You have, this is where you have all your surf music. Dick Dale, uh, the surfaris, Wipeout, um, Pipeline, etc., uh, etc. Et and, you know, I think the tom-tom is, is a great, um, uh, uh, sort of a great, for the, you know, the pounding surf, I mean, the, the you know, sliding down a wall of water, I think the tom-tom is a, is a great um, mechanism, I guess, to express the sort of the, the pulsating, pounding excitement of what this music was about, and, and indeed the, the idea of, of rock and roll uh, in general as it in its first incarnation. So now, you know, the tom-tom is an integral part of the drum set, integral part of the sound of popular music. Um, of course, you know, jazz, we, we sort of talked about that arc and to this day, in general, the basic jazz drum set, at least in a sort of a straight-ahead music situation, hasn't changed all that much. Um, so let's continue to move along the pop music track, the rock track, as it were. So now we get to the 60s. And, of course, you know, the golden age of, of instrumentals is in this really inventive period in America from the late 50s uh, into the early 60s. And But what you then have is... In America, there was a huge backlash against early rock and roll. And they, in the early 60s in America, there was the rock that was coming out, much of the mainstream rock was really watered down. You have to remember Elvis, who was rock's biggest early star, went into the military. Eddie Cochran uh, was killed in a car crash. Gene Vincent was ma- maimed. Little Richard quit music and went to the ministry. Jerry Lee Lewis was, was uh, you know, scandalized by marrying his cousin. Chuck Berry was an all-around asshole who, uh, you know, was not, was not a likable person. Uh, so <clears throat> the early rock and roll, and Buddy Holly was killed, of course, between 1958 and 1960 is when all these things happened. So, and, you know, there was a lot of backlash and fear from parents that their kids were getting out of hand, that, that their white children were listening to black music. The early days of rock and roll were both white and black artists were part of that whole thing. So between like 60 and 64 in America, the, this backlash uh, resulted in, uh, you know, that's when Jerry Lewis movies were popular, Doris Day and Rock Hudson movies were popular, Beach Blanket Bingo movies came out. And although you did have some really great underground rock with the likes of Link Ray uh, and some of these other instrumental acts doing their thing, mainstream rock was really reined in in America and and, and there was a, a huge damper put on it. The Gidget movies came out at this time. So youth culture was really sanitized, whitewashed. And however, uh, across the pond in the UK, the early 60s and the very late 50s, there was an amazing rock and roll culture that was spawning there in response to what was happening in America. Uh, Great instrumental rock being produced, Telstar uh, and bands like The Shadows um, doing fantastic stuff. Uh, in in that genre, using the tom toms, of course, uh, and young the young generation of post war 
uh, British kids in the form of the Stones and the Beatles and the Yardbirds and all of them were, you know, loving on all this American music, um, which represented, you know, a, a bright tomorrow positivity. Remember that, that in World War II, England had been bombed incessantly by the Germans, and they, uh, these, these kids were born into a very, very, very gray existence. And um, so instrumental, you know, the British invasion emerges, grows, and makes its way back to America, bringing authentic rock and roll, really, in a way, back to America, in a way that it was never going to be sanitized again. Uh, and, um, and now let's focus on the Beatles, because what's so amazing about the Beatles and how it relates to the Tom Tom is that the Beatles were the first in so many ways. They were, you know, I mean, just for starters, they were the first bands to, 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 really successfully be singer-songwriters. Uh, that was an unusual thing before then. There were some aberrations, Buddy Holly, Sam Cooke, but, um, you know, of artists that wrote their own songs. But the Beatles really established the, um, the blueprint of the modern singer-songwriter. Uh, and, of course, you know, they were the first band to play in a stadium. The, the, the way the world was, uh, the idea of a boy band like the Beatles could now be turned into a, a phenomenon on a, on a bigger scale than ever before. Not to mention they were good. <laughs> they were very talented uh, and wrote a lot of great songs. But the, what I want to focus on with regard to the Tom Tom is the later part of the Beatles' career, which... You know, they decided with all the hype and the craziness uh, and and the exhaustion of touring after so many years that that they were going to stop doing live performances, you know, famously, we know this, and they spent the remaining five or so years of their career uh, locked in the studio. Now, this was a revelation. Uh, no, no act of any kind had ever done this before, uh, but they could dictate the terms of their existence because they sold so many records that... that uh, EMI just said, do whatever you want to do. So they locked themselves essentially in Abbey Road Studios, EMI Studios at the time, uh, and began to reinvent what was possible on a recording. Nobody had ever had that much time. Nobody had ever had that much inclination to mess with what was was possible with recording technology. Nobody was ever taking that many drugs or freeing their minds in such a way. So these things all come together and allow what the Beatles created in that time uh, was was incredible. Um, you know, th- this incredible amount of music in such a short period of time. It, it, just every new album rewrote the book, essentially, not only musically, mus- on terms of musical forms, uh, but in terms of um, how those could be recorded. And so the studio became their laboratory. And one of the things that the Beatles did very successfully was how they were changing the sounds of the drums. Now, you have to remember that drums had always, and generally recording prior to this time, had been about, let's just capture what, um, you know, let's just capture what the performers are doing as mo- accurately as possible. And the Beatles said, let's mess with the sound, and create the sound in the studio. So, you know, what they did with the tom-toms was they removed, uh, they were sort of the first to remove the bottom heads on the tom-toms, remove the front head of the bass drum, which is something that I don't think I had ever heard of before, prior to the Beatles, and they began to deaden the drums in certain ways. Ringo would put towels on the drums for uh, many of the the later recordings to get this really kind of dead sound out of the drums, and then they would experiment uh, to some degree anyway with with 
effects, whether the, the effects were live in the room or messing with stereo and panning and things like that. And so, and, and probably with EQ, I'm not sure how, I'm not an expert in, in that realm, but, um, you know, Beatles records sounded different. There's no doubt about that. And because they were so popular, everybody else on the planet in recording centers all over the country were paying attention in New York, um, and in Los Angeles, you know, the, the, the Brian Wilsons are listening. The, the uh, you know, everybody making records at that time uh, was listening. And every new Beatles record that came out was to be dissected and, you know, trying to figure out what the hell was going on. So as we move into the 70s, what's interesting about tom-toms and indeed drum sounds in general is that they became deader. Uh, in the Beatles playing with these ideas set the trend for where music was going to go for the next decade or so. And so the 70s are characterized by a lot of the same features, uh, pulling the bottom heads off of the toms, pulling the front head off the bass drum, muffling things up, the development of drum heads that were, you know, two-ply heads, um, the pinstripe uh, that were designed to pull out the low end of the drum. Uh, and to deaden the the ring of the drum, because the ring of the drum is something that uh, began to cause issues if you're trying to control the sound or or you know get the sound to bend to your will in the studio. Now the fact that that drums are very um, live and um, and and have have a lot of resonance is an is an issue whereas before that was what you were trying to capture was the resonance of the drum now you know you're trying to really deaden it down and so this is where stuffing you know pillows and all kinds of other crap into bass drums where, where all that began probably where the vented hole concept of the front head began whereas that had never been the case before um, say the 60s or into the 70s so you know if you think of sort of the the great drummers of that era, Steve Gadd, very very dead Tom sound, the great studio masters, Jim Keltner, um, you know, uh, even Hal Blaine on a lot of the '70s stuff that he that he was doing, um, it, it was all designed to now control the sound of the of the tom toms. So as we move now into the '80s, electronic effects really begin to dominate. Uh, what's happening as far as the recording process. Multi-tracking is now, of course, well-established, and you could record a separate track on every instrument of the drum set. Um, And I think, you know, electronic drums evolve, of course, during this period, late 70s into the 80s. And this idea of absolutely controlling the sound of the drums and now creating, if you will, the sound of the drums with after effects, reverb, echo, limiters, um, gating, uh, you know, all of these kinds of things, um, really sort of like the engineer becomes and the producer, they become the idea of what began with the Beatles of let's make the studio laboratory is now kind of, in my opinion, a Frankenstein monster. And when you listen to so much 80s music, it is so process sounding, which is why a lot of it is just utterly forgettable. You listen to something like Peter Gabriel, uh, you know, or Phil Collins in the air tonight, they are masterfully creating interesting uh, sounds using the new technology 
and treating the drums in different ways uh, using what's called gated reverb. And so the Phil Collins famous, you know, sort of brought this new um, way of miking and of putting effects on the toms into into play. Uh, so there's that. You know, you listen to any Peter Gabriel record from the 80s, the drums sound amazing. They sound otherworldly, and it's fascinating. Um, but sadly, you know, most music that comes out, everyone's just grabbing for the latest way, latest technology, the latest thing in a box, so they can make their record sound like everything else. And most... I think, in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, I'm not really a fan of 80s drum sounds in general. They just sound horribly over-affected. Of course, 80s, the 80s is when, the and, and the late 80s into the early 90s is when the power tom made its appearance. So, you know, remember that with all of this technology, you could make the drums and indeed all the instruments sound bigger and bigger and bigger and more sort of like Jesus coming. Uh, and so... You know, this is they go down such uh, extreme directions in this case, um, and and just so just so much of the music, it's just so enormous sounding. Yet to me, it just sounds very dated. It, it doesn't hold up well over time. Um, so I'm gonna just wrap it up here as we get to the '90s because um, I think today everything is 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 fair game. But the '90s, especially with uh, the emergence of you know. Uh, the Seattle sound, Nirvana, Pearl Jam. It was sort of like, let's get rid of all of this pomp and circumstance, overblown hairdos, ridiculous outfits, uh, hair metal, you know, uh, over-the-top kind of new wave, you know, whatever have you, That that's just gotten so extreme in, as far as how sort of huge it sounds. And let's make a return to something that sounds like a drum set, you know, or like a band. Um and so, you know, I think we reach a balance between recording the drums well, getting a good sound out of them. Of course, the 90s is when DW emerges as a, a force in drumming. That's when I got my first drum set. Uh, I was in the, I think, around 92. My first DW drum set, I should say. I've been a DW endorser for since 94. Uh, love the company. Love what they represent. To me, DW is a modern throwback to those original family-owned great classic American drum companies like Ludwig, Slingerland, Rogers, um, Leedy. Uh, and, the, you know, it became like so much in the 80s. It was about, you know, Japanese versions of things. The Japanese stuff, in my opinion, is very, very well made. But it, it not today so much, but in the 80s, it just sounded very generic. It was like a Toyota Corolla or a Honda Civic. They were everywhere. You could count on them. They were dependable, but they were all exactly the same. And that's the feeling I get about those older sort of Yamaha drums. Nothing against Japanese drums, but I'm an American drum guy. I'm all about the history of the instrument. It's an American instrument. So I, you know, that's why I love a company like DW because I, I just feel a kinship with all the stuff that I've done, the history I've looked at. Um, but at that time, the power toms, they got rid of them. They actually had they went for a thing where the, they, they went in the opposite direction, shallow toms. Those are around for a couple of years. But the sizes of toms generally work well because of, you know, I mean, it's just uh, you, you go back to what they came upon, those drum companies in the, in the 1930s and 40s, and, you know, nine, 8 by 12, 9 by 13, these generally sound pretty good. Uh, 16 by 16 floor. People complain about it all the time, yet 
Every freaking drum set is a 16 by 16 floor, 18 by 18. They call them box, box toms. Fine by me. Um, I've managed to make it work just fine over all these years. Um, and so anyway, you know, the 90s sort of brought a return to, you know, a band sounding like a band, um, a, a throwback to a more organic kind of a sound. Uh, as I was saying earlier, I think today is... It's a, it's an amazing. Um, we have everything at our disposal. We have millions of ways of recording things. We have so much music we can look back on. We can make it sound like whatever decade we want, and you know, more power to everybody for that. I, I'm thrilled about that. So I think we sort of, perhaps, broken free of these constraints. We still certainly have trends, lots of different, you know, kind of sounds. Um, I'm sure I left out a lot of stuff, octobons, and, you know, I didn't really get too much into electronics and all that kind of stuff. But just basically talking about the evolution of this instrument, and and it survived. It's still here. The tom-tom is still an essential part of a drum set, uh, pretty much in every pop popular style of music. You know, even though today we've got loops and sequencers and all that kind of stuff, God bless it, the drum set is still here, still kicking, and um, I'm, I'm thrilled and happy about that. So I'm going to wrap it here. Um, I just want to say, if you'd like to follow me on Facebook, uh, you can go to Daniel Glass, drummer, author, educator. Check out all the stuff I post there. If you have any feedback or ideas for future podcasts, I'm always looking for good ideas. Please email me, daniel at danielglass.com. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this podcast and keep swinging. And we'll see you next time on The Daniel Glass Show here on Drummer's Resource. Drummer's Resource.